Good morning. It's a privilege to be here. Really appreciate your pastor very much. I kind of uh, always looked up to him. He, he graduated from, semin- from seminary before I did, and I've heard him speak. I had heard him speak a couple of times, and I always respected him, but didn't really become friends with him until um, I pastored in Royal Oak for eight years from 2009 to 2017. And uh, he and I would meet about once a month for lunch, and uh, <clears throat> we really got to know each other when we went on a trip to Washington, D.C. for a pastor's conference. And just the two of us, we drove out there and, uh, and tried to understand a little bit more about uh, church and purposeful ministry. And, and together, in the evenings and on the trip back, we would discuss uh, what would be best for um, for leading God's people, and and so during that time, I I learned uh, that your pastor is is a man of character. He's serious about the scriptures, and um, and so thankful for his ministry, and and uh, so thankful to be here today. So thank you for allowing me to to come. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter one. I want to do a survey of the first six chapters of, of Leviticus in order to see um, what worship looked like in the Old Testament and then try to translate that to, to what God expects of us. One of the interesting things when you go on vacation is to, to visit different churches and uh, to see how other people worship God. And uh, with the advent of live streaming, Sometimes it's more comfortable just to sit in your Airbnb and, <clears throat> or your vacation home and, and watch your church back here. And, and there's, there's some value to that because we, we miss being here. We want to we wanna be with our people. And, but, but I've always enjoyed sitting in on other services and, and seeing how other people worship the Lord. Uh, what kinds of elements do they include in the service of worship? What kinds of songs do they sing? <clears throat> and this is important for us to evaluate for ourselves. What is it that we are doing in worship? What kinds of things ought to be part of our worship service? Imagine if you were invited to the White House in 2007 to meet President Bush. Um, You wouldn't come uh, however you wanted. You wouldn't just, you know, I'll I'll just come in my my sweatpants and my, my tank top or something. You'd find out exactly what was expected of you, so you'd talk to his, his staff to find out what is appropriate dress for the occasion. And our relationship with God is, is much different than that. It's, it's much more reverent in nature because, um, and, and there's another element too that's a little bit different from being invited to the White House, and that is that we're sinners. And we've actually... Put to death, our sin is responsible for the death of God's Son. So it would be more like getting an invitation to the White House after having killed one of the president's family members. And we wouldn't just walk into the White House and go, Hey, big guy, what's for dinner? Put our feet up on the table or something. And, and, and in a similar way, when we come to worship, we don't just kind of... Um, uh, irreverently or just passively or flippantly come into worship thinking, hey, what's going to make me feel good today? What, what's going to, what's going to uh, scratch the itch that I have? What kinds of songs do I enjoy? 
These are not wrong things to desire, for sure. But, but, but many times when it comes to worship, it tends to be focused on me instead of recognizing I have, have cre- created a great gulf between myself and my God, and he has fixed that gulf with, with the blood of Jesus Christ. He has spanned that gulf with the death and, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if we were invited to some kind of meeting like that after having committed such a terrible crime, we would be seeking forgiveness and bowing in shame. We live in a culture that minimizes how we come to have a relationship with God. Many churches are going to tell their, um, the people who attend that God is going to accept them as they are. And if by that they mean that God will accept even the worst of sinners, then yes, God will accept the worst of sinners when they come and repent. But I'm afraid that, that many times these churches offer profane worship, and their profane worship speaks louder than their words. And churches are happy to make um, the worshiper like a customer. And since in our society the customer is always right, then churches bow to the desires of the worshipers. And so you can go to a place not too far from here, Kensington Community Church. And you can hear secular songs played so that the seekers, the worshipers, will feel comfortable. That is their expressed intent. And I'm not talking about secular music with Christian words. I'm talking about secular songs that are performed by a live band in order for you to feel comfortable. Songs like, Trojans by Atlas Genius, or Thunderstruck by ACDC, or Born to be Wild. This is not like we're putting on a concert just as an event to try to meet people. This is, this is part of our worship. And if you don't believe me, you can <clears throat> go online and watch one of their services. It's actually kind of shocking, the kinds of things that go on in, in that church. In the, in the process of exalting the customer, we can marginalize God to a place of non-importance when he actually deserves the place of prominence. And our, our church, I would say, and I, I would imagine even from experiencing um, your worship today, is far away from the practices of Kensington Community Church. But, but are there other ways that we minimize God's concerns about worship? Are there other ways we minimize our own sin? And we profane the name of God in our worship. And this is a good question to consider. This is something that we should regularly consider. Not just assume, hey, you know, things have been going well for a long time here. And so we can just be assured that God's accepting our worship. We should regularly be evaluating what is going on in this place. You see, God is deserving of our best worship. Leviticus helps us to see that our sin has created a complex barrier between us and God. And that God has meticulously laid out how a worshiper must come to him in the Old Testament. And, and I think from this we learn that, that worship is not just kind of like a throwaway thing or just another thing, just kind of appease us. Something God takes very seriously for us as well. You see, communing with God is no small thing. And so we should not be flippant when we come 
to worship our God. We should take it very seriously. We should prepare for coming. We should be engaged when we're here. Let me read the first nine verses of chapter 1, Leviticus, just to give us a sense of what's going on here. And I'll explain the different kinds of offerings that that are described here in these first six chapters, and then we'll, we'll make some application for ourselves. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd of the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. He shall lay the young bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the suet, over the wood, which is on the fire that is on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer up and smoke all of it on the altar for burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. Leviticus teaches us that we can't come to God apart from a proper sacrifice. One of the great things about studying this book, it's sometimes when you get there in your Bible reading, you're like, okay, when am I going to be... Give me back to the narrative. Give me back to the action. This is uh, kind of tedious and, uh, for honest, a little boring. Uh, but Leviticus is actually helpful for us to understand Hebrews, I think. And it's also un- helpful for us to understand just the nature of worship and what God expected of his people. And what we learn is that we can't come to the holy God apart from a proper sacrifice. God demands a sacrifice. And this highlights two main things. One, his holiness, seriousness about sin. And two, our great sin that has caused this gulf between him and us. The text begins with a summary of all the offerings in verses 1 and 2. And, and we're not going to go verse by verse through this whole thing. I think the most helpful way to look at this extended passage, chapters 1 through 6, is to first explain what each of the offerings are and what they look like for an Old Testament Israelite. And then second, I want to show how these offerings are significant for our study and understanding. So first, an explanation of the offerings. The first type of offering is found in chapter 1. It's a burnt offering. We read about this. So what does this offering look like? This was the most common offering that an Israelite would offer. It was offered morning and evening, and it was to be a male without defect from the herd, cattle, sheep, or goat. Now think about that for the Israelite. We might not put a lot of thought into that, but, but these are the types of animals that they were allowed to eat. They would be raising many of these same kinds of animals so that they could eat these things. These were clean animals for them. And so they're not offering like, you know, it'd be nice if they could offer like a camel or a pig, ones that they were not allowed to eat. But instead, they had to give of their best to God. And in this offering, the burnt offering, it would be burned up completely. So it's not like we, we give a portion of it to God and then we eat some of it for ourselves. The entire animal was burnt up as an offering to God. 
If a person couldn't afford it, according to verses 14 to 17, he'd bring a bird instead. And the practice was that the offerer would lay his hand on the head of the animal, kill the animal, skin it, and cut it up. And then the priest would sprinkle the blood around the altar, and then he would arrange the meat on the altar and burn it up. And it was called a burnt offering because everything was burnt except for the skin. So that's what the offering looked like for these worshipers. Now what did it do? The purpose of the offering was to atone for unintentional sins in general. Atonement was uh, seen when the offerer would lay his hand on the head of the, the animal. The animal, animal would die in the sinner's place. So instead of me dying for the sin that has, has created this enmity between me and God, the animal would die in my place. And we could say innocent animal, someone who's not responsible for the sin that I committed. And notice the result at the end of verse 9. It's called a soothing aroma to the Lord. The end of verse 13. An offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. The end of verse 17. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. It gives this picture of God having this pleasant smell to his nostrils. Now God doesn't smell. He's, he's spirit. He doesn't have a body. But it, it gives this picture for us to understand. It's that pleasant aroma to God that he enjoys when his sinners, his people, come and offer this offering to him. He sees it as pleasing in his sight. It was through the shedding of blood that God granted them forgiveness for their sins. So that's the first type of offering, the burnt offering. In chapter 2, we learn about the grain offering. The grain offering. What does this offering look like? Well, the offer, their offerer would bring either uncooked fine flour, verses 1, 1 through 3, or baked bread, verses 4 through 10. And it was to be mixed with oil and seasoned with salt and then given to the priest who would sprinkle it on the altar. Some would be kept for the priest to eat. And the restrictions are listed in verses 11 through 13. There cannot be any yeast and there cannot be any honey. Notice in verses 14 through 16 that God expected the best of the best. Verse 14, also if you bring a grain offering of early ripened things to the Lord, you shall bring fresh heads of grain roasted in the fire, grits of new growth for the grain offering of your early ripened things. You shall then put oil on it and lay incense on it, and the grain, it is the grain offering. The priest shall offer it up in smoke, its memorial portion, part of its grits and its oil with all its incense as an offering by fire to the Lord. God wasn't looking for their leftovers. He wasn't something he didn't, wasn't looking for something that was old and stale or you know was going to be thrown into the compost pile anyway. He wants the best of your harvest. The best of what you have, bring it to me. Offer it to me as a sacrifice, as something not to be eaten by you. This offering the purpose of this offering was that it was a thanksgiving offering. It showed the dedication that a person had to God, his life and his work. It's saying, God, I'm thanking you for what you have provided for me. So the offerer would offer the best of his grain to show his devotion and gratitude to God. And the result is, in chapter 2, verse 2, at the end of the verse, notice, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. The end of verse 9. And shall offer it up and smoke on the altar as an offering by fire of a soothing aroma 
to the Lord. In the end of verse 12, but they shall not ascend for, uh, for it is a, so- a soothing aroma on the altar. So again, this picture of God being pleased with the kinds of worship that they're bringing. It had to be done in a particular way. You couldn't, you couldn't decide. It's, it's not something that, that we make a choice about. You know, I, I want to worship God the way I want to worship Him. That doesn't work. We ask God, just like if we came to the White House, we find out what's expected of us, not the other way around. We don't come with a list of demands. Thank you for inviting me, President Bush, but here are the things that I need. I need to make sure the room is exactly 68 degrees and I have some ice-cold seltzer water or whatever you drink. You know, we don't make demands. We come and find out what is expected of us. And that's what we do in worship as well. The burnt offering, the grain offering, and then in chapters 3 through 6, we have the peace offerings. The peace offerings. These were for rejoicing and communion with God. The peace offerings are always mentioned in the plural, whereas the burnt offering and the grain offering are mentioned, and the sin and guilt offering are mentioned in the singular. This is probably the case because the peace offerings did not come on their own. That You didn't come just to offer a peace offering. You would offer it with something else. It would be in addition to another kind of offering. So when a person wanted to make peace with God, you would bring it alongside of a guilt offering, for example. And so here, uh, Moses lays out for us three kinds of peace offerings. There, there is one that's called the peace offering. It's pretty, pretty generic, but, but that's what it's called. And then the sin offering... And then the guilt offering. These all are designed to make peace with God. First, the peace offering in chapter 3. What does this offering look like? Well, this offering would be very similar to a burnt offering in that it required an animal without defect from the herd or flocked or a bird if poor. And the offerer would lay his hand on the head of the animal and he would kill it and the priest would sprinkle blood on the altar. The difference is that a person could bring not just a male, but he could also bring a female if he chose to. And instead of having the whole animal burned up before the Lord like the burnt offering, this offering was shared, just like you would have in a, peace, a peaceful relationship. It's almost like you're sitting down for a meal with the Almighty God. Some of it's going to him, some of it you're eating for yourself. Again, these are the best portions of the animal. They're put on the altar um, given to God, so we don't get to choose the best cuts of meat, the filet mignon, so to speak, um, of these kinds of animals. We're not eaten by ourselves. We give those to God, and then we eat, um, you know, the kind of steaks that I had growing up with those little flank steaks that just overcooked, and they just keep, you're just chewing on them for like five or six minutes. Those are the types that, that they would probably eat, but at least they got to eat. And the remaining meat would be eaten by the priest's of the offer. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. It is a perpetual statute that throughout all generations and all your dwellings, you shall not eat any fat or any blood. So the, the fact that he's saying you, sh- you can't eat any of the fat, the best portions, or any blood, um, is suggesting that you can eat these other parts. And that's, that's why I think it includes kind of this co- uh, communal kind of meal going on here between the worshiper and God. Now, what does the offering, offering do for the worshiper? The purpose of the offering was to atone for unintentional sins in general. Atonement was seen when the offerer would lay his hand on the head of the animal, again, just like the burnt offering, and the animal would die in the sinner's place. And notice the result again in chapter 3 and verse 9, at the end of the verse, 
probably already have an idea what this is going to say. Um, sorry, that's the wrong, wrong one here. One second. Yeah, sorry, I was looking at something else. Um, the uh, verse eleven: the priest shall offer it up and smoke on the altar as food and offering by fire to the Lord. Um, and then at the end of verse 16, there's the one I was looking for. The priest shall offer them up in the smoke on the altar as food and offering by fire for a soothing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. So don't think like gristle and kind of the worst parts, but actually, you know, the, the best kinds of meats are the ones that have the, the stripes of fat through them, in my view. Um, the peace offerings were designed to show the need for fellowship with God. Uh, and this was order, in order for the, the worshiper to have peace with God that they would have to offer a blood sacrifice. The second kind of peace offering is a sin offering in chapters 4 and 5, a sin offering. What did this offering look like? Well, it looked like several different things. Um, Let me just take you through this quickly. For the priest, it was a bull without defect. Look at verse 3. This is chapter 4, verse 3. If the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord a bull without defect as a sin offering. For the sin he has committed, he shall bring the bull to the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the bull and slay the bull before the Lord. So for the priest, he had to bring a bull. For the congregation, verses 13 to 14, they needed to bring a young bull. If the whole congregation, verse 13, commits error and the matter escapes the notice of the assembly, and they commit any of these things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, and they become guilty, When the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a bull of the herd for a sin offering and bring it before the tent of meeting. So for the priest, a bull without defect, a congregation, the young bull. For the leader, a male goat, verse 22. When a leader sins and unintentionally does any of all the things which the Lord his God has commanded not to be done, and he becomes guilty of his sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a male without defect. For the common person, it was a female goat, goat or a, land, verse, a lamb, verse 27. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any of these things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and becomes guilty, if his sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without defect, for his sin which he has committed. The poor person was to bring a dove or a pigeon, according to chapter 5, verse 7. A desperately poor person was to bring a tenth of an ephah of flour, which is about three pounds. So again, this is not small stuff. Even for a poor person to bring three pounds of flour uh, to, as a sacrifice is saying something, isn't it? Imagine how much they could make out of that, that amount of flour. For each of these sacrifices, the offerer would lay his hand on the head of the offering, kill it, the priest would take the blood, sprinkle it on the altar, and the offerer would cut it up and the priest would offer that meat on the altar to the Lord. And the result, again, is that God is pleased. At the end of verse 20, chapter 4, So the priest shall make atonement for them, and they will be forgiven. At the end of verse 26, The priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sins, and he will be forgiven. At the end of verse 31, And the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar for a soothing aroma to the Lord. Thus the priest shall make atonement, and he will be forgiven. And then verse 35, chapter 4, verse 35. Then he shall remove all its fat, just as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall offer them up in smoke on the altar, 
on the offerings by fire to the Lord. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin which he has committed, and he will be forgiven. So, lots of different ways that offerings are brought with regard to sin offerings. What did these offerings do? Well, they made atonement for unintentional sins. I mentioned that. When it comes to sin, intention is very important to the nature and the gravity of the sins, but, but intention is not the only uh, thing that's important. There are unintentional sins. One of the effects of sins is, is it, they, and temptation is it can deceive us, can deceive the sinner and dull and darken our faculties. In fact, there will be lots of people on the last day who say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do all these things? Did we not come to church? Did we not uh, serve in these various ministries? And he will say to them, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. And so the nature of sin is that it deceives. How then can we know what God considers to be obedience? The nature of obedience, the nature, I would suggest, of worship is not that it's in the eye of the beholder. You know, I, I think I'm, I'm going to do what, what I want to do. I, I'm going to do what I think is going to be obedience to God. We have to know what God demands through his own self-revelation, through his word. You know, sometimes we say ignorance is bliss, and we use that phrase plausible deniability. In other words, if you know something um, that I should know, but that information would, be, would force me to act, then, then I don't want to know. Don't tell me. And that, I think that's fine in some cases. In fact, I'm thinking of Romans 14 and 15 when Paul says, you know, if you go to your brother's house and he's offering you meat, don't ask if it's been offered at a pagan temple or not. Just eat it. Don't ask any questions. Uh, that's actually 1 Corinthians 10. Um, and so I think there is some sense in which some places in life it's necessary for us to kind of go through life and kind of ignore some of the things that we could be super inquisitive about and find out. But here, when it comes to sin, it's not a good place to be. We should never be in the place where we're like, well, I know I should know something about that, but I, I don't really want to know because then I'm going to be held guilty and responsible and then I'll have to do something. What God is teaching us here is not just the intentional sins, the ones we know that we've done are wrong, but also unintentional sins. You know, David said, forgive me or, or reveal to me my hidden faults. There are things in us that, that we need God to reveal to us and, and we sin very often, I think, even when we don't know it. And those sins still require an atoning sacrifice. When those are brought to our attention, at least for the Old Testament worshiper, he had to come and offer a sacrifice for those unintentional sins. It was a very serious matter. The third type of peace offering is a guilt offering at the end of chapter 5 into chapter 6. What did this offering look like? This offering included both unintentional or neglectful sins and also intentional or willful sins in chapters Six, chapter 6 shows that intentional part of it. The worshiper would offer a ram without defect. Look at verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 14. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If a person acts unfaithfully and sins unintentionally against the Lord's holy things, then he shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect from the flock, according to your valuation, in silver by shekels, in terms of the shekel of the sanctuary for, for a guilt offering. So not only did it include a 
an offering of an animal, a ram here, but also restitution. They'd have to pay 20% fine of what they had done to the offended party. Chapter 6, verse 4 talks about this. Chapter 6, verse 4. It shall come about when he sins and becomes guilty that he shall restore what he took by robbery or what he got by extortion or the deposit which was entrusted to him or the lost thing which he found or anything about which he swore falsely. He shall make restitution for it in full and add to it one-fifth more. He shall give it to the one whom it belongs to on the day he presents his guilt offering. So there's restitution happening. This is something we see in Luke 19 with Zacchaeus when Zacchaeus um, repented of his sins. He said, I'm, I'm going to give a certain amount of money to the poor and I'm going to give four times the amount that I have taken from people. I, I extorted money from people when I was in a position of power and not, not only am I going to give that back, but I'm going to give back four times as much. That's restitution. It comes along with, for the Old Testament worship, or with the offering that's, that's bringing atonement for their sins. What did this offering do? Again, it made atonement for those who violated the covenant with God and the other person. And we learn from this that even when we offend someone else, even when we do something egregious to someone else, we do need to make restoration with them, reconciliation with them. But the nature of our sin is that God is always the most offended party, isn't he? The worst kinds of acts of the worst acts of evil that we could ever do could bring devastating effects to other people, but God is always the most offended party when we sin. And God expects that atonement be made for our sins, not just restitution to the other person. So, now that we've looked at uh, the offerings, tried to explain each of the offerings and what they mean, I think it would be helpful for us to consider what the significance of these offerings are. Because we cannot come to the holy God apart from a proper sacrifice. And if that's true, what does that mean for us? Because there are no temples that are active right now that I'm aware of, that where people are still offering sacrifices. And so, what, what does that mean for us? How do we, what, what, what can we take from this? I think first, learning and being reminded about some of these things shows us the depth of our sin, the great gulf that, that is fixed between us and God. I would suggest that our sin is, is probably much worse than we think it is. Uh, we, we live on this side of the cross and the resurrection, and so we are recipients of much grace and mercy. And it's very easy for us to just kind of dismiss the, the, the terrible uh, nature of our sin and what it caused. The way that I think about it often is that if I was the only person to ever live in this world... You know, sometimes you look at the cross and you're like, you know, there's some really bad people. And so when Jesus died, you know, for the Pauls of the world, I mean, he, he had to shed a lot of blood. Uh, but for me, mine was kind of just like a drop over here, just kind of, it wasn't that big of a deal. It saved when I was young. And I mean, how, many, how much sin could I possibly committed that would... But, but if I were the only worshiper, finally only person who ever lived on this earth, my sin would be enough to put Jesus on the cross. In other words... There is a gulf fixed between me and God because of my sin, and I can't fix that on my own, no matter how many good things that I do. 
right? I, I can't just dismiss and go, well, it's, it's kind of a small sin, really. You know, those big sins that people like Paul and, and others have done, murder and, and David, I mean, really, um, those are egregious. But my sins are, you know, theirs are like a big pile of trash that you got to do something about. And mine are more like the, you know, the orange peels that you throw in the garbage. You know, the, it's garbage, yeah, but it kind of smells sweet a little bit. And, and you almost feel bad about throwing it away. You got to use it for something. It's, it's kind of valuable, right? And that, that's how I look at my sin. But when I see it for what it is, my sin has caused a great offense against the holy God. He is completely holy. Think about the community sins. We probably don't think a lot about community sins because we understand rightfully so that each person is responsible for their own sin. But sin is much more complex than that. That there are whole groups of people, and and I would say, let's just think about it in terms of a church. Our church is going to be responsible for various sins that we as a community committed. And, and a way to think through that is just read through the letters to the churches in Revelation, Revelation 2 and 3. I have this against you. I know your deeds. You lost your first love. You tolerated this sin. Right? And so when we stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ... We're not going to be sent to hell because of our sin. It's already covered through Jesus. But we will give an account for every single thing that we did, whether good or evil. And I would say even in a communal kind of setting, this, we've taken ownership of this group. We've committed ourselves to this body of believers. And so when there are sins committed as a whole, we are responsible for them. One theologian points, points it out. He says, We think and act not only as individuals, but as families, as fellow citizens. What we do affects one another. And we have a responsibility for one another. When Adam sinned, it affected all of his descendants, except for one. We don't die for the sin of our parents, but for our own sin. But the sins of our parents do affect us. And I, and I would add, our sins affect our children, don't they? And can lead to our condemnation and to our children's condemnation because we have failed to lead properly or because we have been neglectful or abusive in our leadership. Similarly, a society which condones and even encourages sin must answer to God for sins committed in its midst, even sins of which it's largely ignorant. Another example of this type of communal sin is is when Israel made a covenant with the Gibeonites in Joshua chapter 9. Who, who had to pay the consequences for that? I mean, people long past, uh, remember even Saul is, is fulfilling responsibilities to the Gibeonites um, another generation after, uh, a couple generations after Joshua and his people had already died. So when God looks at our sin... He doesn't just brush it aside and say, oh, you know, oh, well, you know, it's err as human. Or, you're such a cute little creature, and, you know, I can allow you to make your little mess every now and then, like a parent might say to their newborn. Or, or like we might say to our puppy, you know, it's, it's kind of cute, you know, just early on. Certainly, we don't want that to continue, but, you know, we, we still love you. We'll still hold you and cuddle you. This is not God with us. 
Instead, when we read through Leviticus 1 through 6, we see how serious God is about our sin and that it is no small matter to sin against him. And so first, it, it highlights the seriousness of our sin. Second, I think these offerings in this section of Scripture show us the greatness of our Savior. It's kind of interesting that God doesn't have just a one-size-fits-all offering that a person could give just to, like, let's just cover it all. You know, whatever you got. You, you got a leader sin, you got a priest sin, you got a communal sin, you got an individual sin, unintentional, intentional. Hey, why don't you just give me this animal? It's very multifaceted in, in how he expects these to be atoned for. There's no single Old Testament sacrifice that could cover all of what the worshiper needed to come to God. You, you can't just wave a magic wand over your sin and say, hocus pocus, my sins are forgiven. Our sins are so varied and deep and complex that they need, for the Old Testament worshiper, they needed multiple sacrifices in order to atone for sins. And in these sacrifices, we see their various functions, like substitution, or what the New Testament calls propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath. The offer was to lay his hand on the head of the animal to show that something had to die. If I'm going to continue to live and, and, and God is not going to come and judge me, something has to die. These sacrifices also show not just substitution, but expiation, the removal of guilt. That when we sin, we incur guilt on ourselves. That is legal liability for punishment that comes because of our sin. And anim- animals in the Old Testament provided a temporary removal of guilt in God's eyes. But guess what? Once they sinned again, what had to happen? Another sacrifice. Once they became unclean, another sacrifice. And when they did, they received genuine forgiveness, as we saw in, in some of these later chapters. Expiation, the removal of guilt. And then reconciliation, peace, the peace offerings. Our sin puts hostility between us and God. If we're going to come and, and be right with God, then there has to be some kind of sacrifice that's made for us to be reconciled to him. And of course, you, you, know, you know where I'm going. The roles, the various roles of these sacrifices show us how great our Savior is. That his sacrifice was exactly what we needed. Because the blood of bulls and goats cannot ultimately pay for sin. They were a picture that pointed to the perfect substitution. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's an exchanging of robes there. Where we exchange our robe of sin, he wears it and experiences the judgment that we deserved and we receive his robe of righteousness. There is expiation through Jesus. He takes our penalty and our guilt, 1 Peter 2.24, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. He takes our guilt upon himself. Only proper way to handle guilt, by the way. We can't hide it. We can't run from it. We can't excuse it. 
We can't pay for it. It has to be atoned for through Jesus. And then he is our reconciliation, our peace. Romans 5, 10, and 11, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. This is great news for us. Because we are not at war with God. God is not sitting up there going, when are you going to mess up again? When am I going to have to bring some terrible circumstance in your life to wake you up again? We're at peace with him. We're not coming into the White House after having killed one of the president's family members. We're coming into the White House as one of the president's children. We now belong to him, and we're at peace with him. So one observation and one application as we conclude. Uh, observation is uh, something that I mentioned before, but I just want to touch on again, and that is that our sin is no small thing before God. Just because you're not part of the Old Testament or underneath the Old Testament Mosaic Law doesn't change anything in, in regards to your sin and what it means to God. Your sin is no small thing before God, and mine isn't either. God is earnestly and completely holy. He cannot overlook our sin. And so we must come to him on his terms. And the good news for us is that he has already dealt with our sins. He has placed all of the penalty that you deserved and all the guilt that you should pay for on our Savior at the cross. And Jesus bore the wrath of God that we deserved. He stood in the place of all those who believe in him. Friends, your sin is no small thing before God, and that's why God had to do the most drastic thing that he could do, which was to crush his son so that you could have life. If you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ and haven't received that great blessing, the door is open for you today. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. He says that if you ask, it will be given to you. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, he promises that you will be saved. And that offer is available to you today. This is why Jesus came. In fact, his name means he will save his people from their sins. Jesus said in John 10.10, I have come so that you will have life and that you will have it more abundantly. Our sin is no small thing before God, and that's why Jesus had to die. There's nothing more that we need to add to it. Second, uh, by way of application, we must take our worship of God very seriously. These chapters remind us of the very serious nature of what we're doing today and each time that we come and meet with God's people. The bloody sacrifices were a continual picture to the Old Testament person that God is serious about sin, but the good news is that God provided a way for those who come to him in faith and repentance. And he sets up this beautiful Levitical system so that we, the worshipers, could have fellowship with him. And we must take this fellowship with God as seriously as he does. 
So let me just try to relate this to the various elements of the worship service. What would God think about an Old Testament worshiper who thought, you know, I don't really want to offer any of my animals, and I don't want to buy any either. I think it's terrible that animals have to die. And so I'm going to offer what I want to offer. And I know since God is an affectionate God, I mean, certainly he'll accept it, right? He, he loves people. Do you think God would be pleased? One of the next stories that Moses records for us comes in chapter 10. Nadab and Abihu, who despite all these clear regulations that God has laid out for them, and how he wanted to be worshipped, what happened? They did not treat him as holy. They did it their own way. They offered strange fire and brought about judgment on themselves. So can I suggest to you that how we want to worship, listen carefully to what I'm about to say, how we want to worship doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter how we want to worship. That's what Nadab and Baihu were looking for. It's about us. We, we think this is better. This will work. God's not looking for you to give him what you want. God demands your best, and he demands that you do it his way. So here, here's how we can think about this by way of application. In what ways do we treat God as not important or less important than someone else or, or something else? In our church, in our home, how is it that we've taken the one who is holy and made him profane, like common? Just another thing, another part of the schedule, another part of our worship. Yes, God is a part of our worship, but not the most important part. Now you might be thinking, well, our church has been around for decades. We know what we believe. We know what we're doing here. We know the elements of worship. We know what should be included. I think that's good. But can I challenge you to always be evaluating what you are doing in the light of the Word? Ask questions about various things that are going on during the service. Why do we, why, why do we call it an offering? What's the purpose of the offering? This is the only way we can keep the building, you know, the lights on and, and pastor paid? What are we doing here? Why do we sing? Why do we sing these songs? What's the importance of what's being sung? Does it matter the words that we use? Is it okay if we just play music without any propositional truth? What I mean by that is, I loved what you did here today. You had, as the music was being played, propositional truth is actually being shown on the screen so that we're thinking along with what is being played. Ask various questions about things that go on during the surface. Why does our church make the pulpit kind of the center of the auditorium? Right, the, the central piece. Why is preaching kind of the, the main thing in each of our services? What's the point of all that? Is that something that we've designed or we've kind of just fallen into? Or is this what God demands? When he asks to be worshipped, that preaching be a part of the service, that First Timothy 4, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. 
In order for us to find out what God wants, we need to go to God, not go to our history, you know, even as, as wise as your pastor is, he's not the final authority on what you're to do in your worship service. This is. Because pastors can err. They can fail. And so you need to be checking what's going on in your service against... Now, you might be thinking, well, man, did, did he tell you to... <laughs> did, did Pastor Dwight tell you to preach on this? No, I didn't. He didn't, but... And, and are you seeing something that we need to be... No, I, I feel very much at home at this church. So, but I'm just saying, this is the kind of stuff I would say to our church as well. We need to be checking what's going on against what the Scriptures have to say. God has laid down the key elements of what should be a part of a worship service. He's told us how He wants to be worshipped. And what kind of... You ever thought about the God loves a cheerful giver? It's not just the action, but also the intent or the desire, the passion behind it. Find out what God wants, we submit ourselves to it. God is a great God. We are guilty before Him because of our sin, but we can submit ourselves to Him. We can offer up uh, for ourselves an offering of praise, contrition, humility, and seeking His means of atonement. And he provides that through the death of Jesus Christ. We can put our full confidence in that sacrifice, can't we? Christ has finished the work. He has died on the cross and has risen from the grave. And then we can look to him as to how he wants to be worshipped. And I think God will be honored by that. A soothing aroma to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for First Baptist Church and their desire to serve you. Thank you for the worship that they have engaged in today. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of this. And I pray that, that they would, and, and we would, consider what it is you desire, what you want to be a part of worship. And, and I pray that we would engage in it regularly and with hearts full of faith, full of love for you, not just as a, a ritualistic kind of going through the motions kind of attitude, but but a seriousness and, and a sobriety as we sing words um, together, sing to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and me- making melody in our hearts to you. As we hear your word, as we respond to it, we want to be those who obey it. Give wisdom as we apply these things. Thank you for the leadership here. Thank you for Pastor Dwight, and I pray that you'd continue to give him wisdom as he leads and others as well. pray in Jesus' name. Amen.